Right, <clears throat> my name is uh, Raleigh Spornimus, and uh, but you can call me M. I am the head of the Secret Service. And <laughs> Shut it. This is a hen party at a small hotel in Reading, and someone is about to be murdered. You girl, what's the matter? Why are you laughing? <laughs> she spilt her drink. Spat it. Put that away. <laughs> I have some bad news. Em, I'm afraid, is dead. It's my belief he was probably murdered, madam. My initial thoughts. Yes. What I'm going to do now is clear the crime scene. I think the murder evening began to fall apart when the actor playing the dead M was compelled through underfunding to stand up and start playing a murder suspect. Everyone had been game until then, the actors and the amateur sleuths, but things never really recovered after that. The evidence wasn't sort of presented in a very decent fashion, was it? <laughs> you would expect in, a, in an actual real court that the evidence would be more logically presented yes more because it would be yeah. done by lawyers later the murder mystery organizers blamed us for the lack of enthusiasm on the part of the hen party they said that the presence of our recording equipment burst the magic bubble and it became impossible to believe that an actual mystery was unfolding i couldn't get into it could you not because Actually, you didn't get the sort of... After she'd seen the wig, she was finished. That one, the chap's wig, the beginning, yes. You couldn't take it seriously. That was quite tricky, wasn't it, the wig? Quite crazy, it's It was a shame because everyone had gone in with high expectations, because in all of us is a desire to solve mysteries. This is why we become journalists and, and fans of crime fiction and tax inspectors, and we like to gossip about our neighbours and not trust the government or journalists. I'm walking the streets of London, which is something I do all the time. Actually, I'm tired, I'm going to sit down. I just like to walk the streets of London and just, just look at people, just look at them. Try and work out what their stories are. Actually, somebody's now looking back at me, so I'm going to avert my gaze. But in general, I feel equipped to be an amateur sleuth. You know, if your electricity goes, you call an electrician, or if your plumbing goes, you call a plumber, you go to a professional. But I think all of us feel equipped to be amateur sleuths, because if there's a mystery to be solved, we don't call the professional mystery solvers. We, we, we grasp it ourselves. We all want to become amateur sleuths. Jeremy Dyson writes the comedy show, The League of Gentlemen. When he heard that we were making a programme about amateur sleuths, he called. He said that he'd put his career on temporary hold because he'd become so obsessed with solving a mystery from his childhood. Give me something. Give me This started because in Roundy Park in Leeds, which was where we would go most weekends, as a child, in my very early childhood, I remembered this hedge maze, which was this huge thing that you could get lost in. 
you were interested in mazes as a child, like all children are. You say all children. Is that the case? I don't know. You have children, don't you? I, I... Well, I have one child, and like me as a child, I really love mazes, solving the mystery, mm -hmm. solving the puzzle, unless they're too difficult when they very quickly turn from being fun to being a scary That's drag. That's true, yeah. Was the getting lost the pleasure, or was the pleasure the getting lost and then sleuthing your way out of it again? It was what was round the next corner. That was the thing. Definitely. Usually just more maze. That's right, but there was also an exit, and there was a centre. There was yeah. definitely a centre point that you reached with a bench where you, <laughs> could, where you could sit down. Not exciting in itself, but to have got there, you know, was the excitement. Always a bit of a disappointment with the exception of Leeds Castle, where there's an underground grotto in the middle. Well, that, And that is worth that's it. That's a maze constructed by somebody in the know. Yeah. Who knows that you want something at the other end. Jeremy found he was thinking more and more about the maze, so he decided to go back to Roundhay Park to find it. The thing was, the maze had vanished. The thing that got me is I couldn't remember where it was. Roundhay Park's a big place, but it's not that big. But I had no idea where to place this maze in it. Why were you so keen to find the maze? Well, I don't know. I mean, I could offer you an explanation now with hindsight, but at the time I didn't know. For good storytelling, do you want me to kind of hold that back and and we'll get there at the end, like the bench in the centre? Or shall, <laughs> shall, I, shall I introduce it into the conversation now? No, hold back. All right. <laughs> well, hold back because you have the solution to, to the mystery of what was going on in All your right. mind. Well, you to some extent. Don't get excited, listeners. So, yeah, I wanted to find it with where it was without knowing why. It was the need, the need to find it. The first thing I did was I went to Rowney Park and walked around, spent an afternoon walking around. Couldn't, um, find, the couldn't find it. Were you self-conscious walking around? Like, oh, God, yeah. Very, very much Very so. self-conscious. There's a point, you know, when you think, what must you look like to a third party? I felt like somebody on day release or something. But I know exactly what you mean. I was once on holiday and my little boy lost his stuffed cat, Bessie, and he had Bessie with him every single night of his entire life. Mm -hmm. But it had gone. Mm-hmm. And and I became obsessed with trying to find this cat. And my first thought was that the Russians in the next room to us had, had stolen... In their poverty. <laughs> yeah, They'd never this, seen the like of Bessie. Except this was an this was, uh, <laughs> expensive hotel, so they were scary. You know. right. Obviously, I don't speak Russian, they didn't speak English, so I... So you mimed cats. I, I said, le petit chat. <laughs> le petit chat. That's even worse. I know, and they just looked at me. <laughs> and I was like hobbling because I fell over. But finally I went up to the kids' disco because I assumed, you know, a child would have stolen Bessie. Yeah. I was like, you know, hobbling. I'm hobbling up to all these three-year-olds, glaring at their stuffed animals <laughs> to see if any of them were Bessie. The parents were like, including <laughs> Carol Vorderman. Um, <laughs> Carol Vorderman was there? Yeah, and Arsene Wenger. Both looked at me as if I was a paedophile. Anyway, finally it turned out that Joel had gone into the vacant chalet a couple of doors down and <laughs> put Bessie See, in See, it's bed. always the way. It's very, there's always a conventional end to yeah. these labyrinthine quests. But how could there be a conventional end to Jeremy's quest to track down the missing maze? This was a giant maze that had not only evaporated into thin air, but had somehow taken all memories of its existence away with it. So I didn't really know what to do, so I went to the reference library in Leeds, and it was a very helpful woman, and in the plans there was the maze, and suddenly I knew I wasn't mad, and there it was. You would think there would be elation at this point. Actually, it was, it was kind of numb disappointment. It was like, hmm, is that it? The mystery was over. But there was a kick in the tail in that 
on the microfiche I found that the reason the maze had been dismantled is because a child had been attacked in the middle of it and they'd use that as an excuse to get rid of it. I think the real reason was because it was expensive to maintain. Why was it a disappointment to you? Surely... To find it. Well, there could have been only one of two explanations. Either the maze didn't exist or it did exist. Well, it would have been more interesting if it hadn't existed. And this is the conclusion I've come to since. I wanted something that one cannot have. I wanted to go back and be a child again. I don't think your analysis of yourself that the whole thing was to want to get back to your childhood is is a disappointing ending oh no no it's not in it but it's melancholy because i've been thinking about lots about this lately of as one does as you you know crawl towards 40 you know you are aware of it's a one-way ticket and i think that's the human condition it comes to you in moments like <laughs> like this and i think i'm sure that that's one of the things that's going on not in real sleuthing but in this kind of amateur thing when people are on a quest for something, there's a yearning underneath it, you know, and we are, we are made in such a way that we yearn for what was behind us. Uh, and it's no good pointing my thumb on the radio. Can a daylight Can a Can a folks and a in the end, Jeremy wrote a short story about his hunt for the missing maze. He says there's always a disappointing, melancholic end to our sleuthing adventures, but that can't be true, can it? Real life isn't that unmagical, is it? Monday the 9th of July, 1973. The weather closed in. Clouds and mist came down and the loch became calm. Rode and drifted very slowly until 10. Had false sighting. So all I've written is, had false sighting. But I realised that that very prosaic bit of writing actually was the turning point, probably, of my life. You might be able to hear the sound of sloshing water in the background of this report. This is not a sound effect that we've over-enthusiastically added. This is the actual sound of Loch Ness. By the way, bottles of Loch Ness water are selling on eBay for $3.99 plus postage and packing. So think of the loud sloshing sounds that accompanies this report as a free gift from us to you. Adrian Shine has spent much of the past 31 years searching for the monster. It could be argued that maybe Adrian made a mistake putting all his eggs in this one basket, but imagine if he'd found it. I'm a schoolboy of the 1960s, and in the 1960s I was reading books about what was happening at Loch Ness, because Loch Ness wasn't always the butt of jokes. The 1960s, after all, were a time when anything we wanted could be true. People were seeing things in Loch Ness that they didn't understand. When I was rowing down that loch in 1973, 12 miles from any habitation, the night falling fast, and a large hump swam from behind a headland into my field of view. 
I had to make a decision as to what I was going to do. I filmed it, I photographed it. But then what was I going to do? In the end, I rode towards it. In the end, I found it was a rock. That taught me two lessons. One, I could go forward. And second, that you should always follow something to the end. How has this journey affected your family life and the, the people that are close to you? How have they tolerated you? My mother and father tolerated me for long enough. I even built my first submarine in their back garden. Wives, that's another matter. I have just about managed to, to have relationships. No children mind. I've not felt I could have the luxury of that. I guess there's no point in us trying to build up the mystery of whether Adrian did ever find the Loch Ness Monster. But he says he has unearthed a great discovery in the loch, something just as valuable as a plesiosaurus. It is as important to know what is going on inside you. What was it about you, do you think, though, that drove you to go on this kind of quest, to take part in this kind of detection? Mediocrity. I have a mediocre mind. The only really clever people in the world are the astrophysicists. All the rest of us are just their housekeepers, in my opinion. I suppose what I really think is that if there is a reason for us being here, if there is something that characterizes our species, it is a wish to understand. You see, it isn't just a question of poking about, looking at Loch Ness with cameras going under it. In a way, one is the amateur detective. Another icon of Western society, if you like, the other sort of hero. 30 years on, do you still think there's something untoward lurking at the bottom of this lock? I think there's something lurking in the back of human imagination. If science cannot find Loch Ness monsters, then that, I think, is the dilemma posed by the Loch Ness monster. People see them, and science can't find them. Now, I believe most of the eyewitnesses, the vast majority of them. In the court of law, I think I could even prove the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. But I certainly couldn't do it through the scientific method. What I have tried to do is to find that middle way, that little bit of truth that lies behind it. Adrian was interviewed on the banks of Loch Ness by contributing producer Simon Jacobs. At this point, maybe I should say that, yes, Adrian's discovery that there is a magical place that lies between scientific verification and the testimony of eyewitnesses is just as important a discovery as finding the monster. But actually, it would have been better if he'd found the monster. As a child, Danny Robbins wanted to be a private detective like Sam Spade, but instead he became a humorist on the radio which is noble and exhilarating in its own way, but then again, it isn't. So when Danny discovered that a crime had been committed on his own street, he leapt into action. He said he owed it to his childhood dreams. We're on my street and I've just found a poster stuck to the window of a shop with lots of sellotape. At the top it says reward in big orange letters and then underneath it is a photo of a bike. And underneath that it says stolen by thieves. And just underneath thieves it says the oldest profession. I think there are one or two other people who might lay claim to the title the oldest profession, especially round King's Cross. That aside, I think we've got our first case. 
First things first, I needed some witnesses. Who do you think would have stolen a bike around here? What, what kind of people might steal a bike? Um, crackheads. Yeah, definitely. This is King's Cross. There's a dodgy looking estate out the way here with lots of kids on scooters with hoods. So maybe you might track down the, the hoods from the hood. Quietly out there, we can talk better. Yeah, I just want to ask you a few questions. Just take a seat, Vic. So I'm here in the office of Vic, the caretaker of my block of flats. Now, Vic, I've always seen you as the eyes and ears of my street. Have you seen anyone who looks like a bike thief? Well, only the kids, the young kids that live around here, you know, outside and in flats, that's all. Do you think that those kids could be suspects in this case? Definitely, yeah. If Vic was right, I needed to confront some local kids. I found a group in a park nearby. They were well rough and weren't giving anything away. Have you seen the poster down the street at all? It says, um, reward down. Have you seen that? That was, I found that down the road. You see, stolen by thieves. Uh, but, um, where might I find the bike, do you think? Go down Brick Lane Market. Yeah? The bike ain't even been chalked. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, that, that, that's been stolen. I found that poster on the street. He's chatting shit, man. That bike has been chalked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's the truth, it's been stolen. And so that's why I'm trying to get the reward. So why are you walking around and get that out of here? At this point, the roughest kid stole the microphone. Once I'd got it back, I tried to win them over with a share of the reward. So anyway, it's £50 for recovery of bike, £50 for conviction of the thief, so... You're looking to get the whole £100? Mate, what's what? that? I, I, I want to get the whole £100, but if you help me, I could maybe cut you in. I could give you, like, maybe £10. Yeah, oh, right. you're hustling. Yeah, what's like, that, then? We might as well go and get the £50. Between you, you like, might as well go and get the black. Because I'm, I'm a private detective. I'm not working with the police, you see. They won't work with me because I'm a bit of a maverick. Following the kids' tip-off, I decided to check out Brick Lane Market with a disguise and a hidden microphone. I was going to be a bit like... McIntyre undercover, but better and less pompous. OK, I'm wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses so as not to draw attention to myself. Just met up with my brother, who's here as my bodyguard, and in the space of about ten minutes of him waiting for me, he's already seen a theft. Uh, he saw someone take the front wheel off a bike right in front of him, uh, basically with deep in bike thief territory. Is that for sale? Yes, sir. How much is that? What's 500 in the shop? 500 in the shop, sir. Yeah. And so you're selling for 90? Yeah, it's not even 500. Yeah, yeah. Many owners, do you think? Or? No, I'm, I'm the owner. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I am. How much Basically, these bikes are all nicked. This bike looks extremely like the one in the photograph, and it's going for £110. Now, the reward, obviously, if I can get the bike back and get the fee convicted for 100 it's 110 I at present would be down £10, which by anyone's standards is not great business and not really why I went into flood detection. I still hadn't found the thief. I'd tried interrogation. I'd tried going undercover. It was time for one last desperate measure. A stakeout. It's about 10 o'clock at night and I've just chained my bike up outside my house and just going back in now. It's a fairly flimsy lock, so it should be tempting to the thieves. And I'm just going upstairs uh, to a window where I can see the bike and see if anybody tries to steal it. Uh, I just have to go to the toilet. I'll just check if... Yeah, no, the bike's still there. 
It's 1.47 a.m. and it's now raining quite heavily. Uh, the, the bike's actually getting very wet, so I can only imagine that's going to put the feeds off. It's three o'clock GMT. I'm Susan Ray with the latest BBC News headlines. Negotiators at the Geneva... It's been very boring. I've watched lots of stakeout films on telly and it always looked quite fun. You, know, you sort of sit in the car and eat donuts and drink coffee. I couldn't get any donuts and I don't really drink hot drinks. Anyway, I think I'm going to go to bed now. If someone nicks a bike whilst I'm asleep, so be it. Um, they're welcome to it, frankly. Okay, signing off. Good night. Walking out of the Tesco car park in uh, Boreham Wood towards Elstree Studios to see Tony Fruin. Tony's really a, a professional amateur sleuth in that he was Stanley Kubrick's live-in amateur sleuth for three and a half decades. Kubrick would say, find me this particular typeface or or track down this person who nobody's heard of for 30 years and Tony would do it. So, in a way, amateur sleuth is a pejorative term to Tony because he's very, very good at it. A colleague of mine up at Stanley's house, his car couldn't start one day, so he called the AA in. And I was standing there and he said to this colleague of mine, he said, who lives in this big house? And my colleague said, Stanley Kubrick. He said, oh, what a small world. He said, I met that Stanley Kubrick on a train coming out of Houston the other evening. I got a phone call from a Nigerian, a sometime actor, who was putting on an all-black production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and he had turned the other backers away because Stanley was going to bankroll the whole operation. So next time I saw Stanley, I, I said, I spoke to this guy. He, he said, I've never heard of him. I got a phone call from some guy down in Brighton who said he was a personal friend of Stanley's, and I asked him how long he'd known Stanley, and he said, well, um, a couple of years. And he said, I've been to his house as well. Now, Stanley's house then was in St Albans, and I, I said to the guy, I said, where's Stanley's house? Yeah, you know, kind of litmus paper test and he said in Wildstone I said Wildstone I said where did you meet Stanley he said in a wine bar in Kensington well you know did it cross your mind at all did a little bit if you think that Stanley Kubrick was leading a double life and was going to wine bars in Kensington <laughs> well for a fleeting nanosecond it did cross my mind I thought oh, no, this is crazy of course not so I said to the guy I said can you let me have the address he said, sure, and he gave it to me. And I said, listen, I hate to say this, but I think you've been conned. So I, I now had an address on Canning Road in Wildstone. I got onto the local library and got them to check out the electoral roll to see who was living at this address. And it was a guy called Alan Conway. <laughs> By now, Tony was getting calls almost every day from people claiming to have met Stanley Kubrick on public transport and in wine bars and toilets and on piers in seaside resorts. 
These were bad times for Stanley Kubrick, who blamed himself. Because he was such a private man, no one knew what he looked like, and now someone was going around claiming to be him so he could sleep with men. Inside the Kubrick house, opinions about the Alan Conway problem were divided. Mrs. Kubrick and the Kubrick daughters were quite upset and disconcerted by the whole thing. But Kubrick and Tony, both keen amateur sleuths, were enjoying the thrill of it. You always sort of shouts and ructions and police cars, and um, I build up a big uh, fire because Stanley always liked things to be memoed. And somebody sent me the copy of his criminal record of his file. Burglary, fraud, embezzlement, and a lot of gross indecency, I hasten to add. Um, a lot of sort of hanging around in lavatories, you know. One fatal mistake. He signed a legal document, a legal instrument in Stanley's name. It was something to do with um, a gay club in Old Compton Street. By now, I'd been in touch with the police and advised them of what was happening. And of course, this is a, a deception, criminal offence, blah, blah, blah. Well, Conway, once he got wind of this, carted himself off to a psychiatric ward at the local hospital in Wildstone saying as he went, well, once the CPS get wind of me being in a psychiatric ward, you know, they'll drop this like a hot potato, which they did. But, I mean, he'd had his wings clipped. And he stopped? He stopped? Well, well, we certainly didn't get any more phone calls. We thought perhaps he was um, being off pretending to be someone else. He didn't look like Stanley, he didn't sound like Stanley, and he didn't know anything about Stanley. And he had only seen a bit of one of Stanley's films, and he said he didn't like it. Stanley Kubrick and Alan Conway died within just a few months of each other, and there's a few final ironies. Tony had worked for Kubrick for 30 years, and now, in a way, he's working for Conway. He's written a film about him, Colour Me Kubrick, which is coming out in the new year. And Alan Conway always wanted to be famous, and in this movie he's being played by John Malkovich still walking the streets of London, feeling slightly self-conscious because I'm talking into a microphone and whilst I like to just look at people, I, I don't really want to look at people in this instance, so I'm going to wait for the people to walk away. You know, I think there is a message to this programme when you think about it. The murder mystery night was all about, you know, disappointment and the Jeremy Dyson piece about looking for the lost maze was, was really all about disappointment and really disappointment runs... Like, like words through a stick of rock through the Loch Ness Monster hunt. And the bicycle thief piece turned out to be a disappointment. Really, it, it, was, a, it was a quest that never reached fulfilment. And the Alan Conway story really is, is, is about disappointment because, you know, he was such a mysterious figure, Conway, but then when we found out about him, you know, he was just a bit of a nut. So I think the message of this programme is that the excitement of amateur sleuthing never quite lives up to the reality, which is a disappointment. So really, the, this programme is, is saying that, that, that life is a, is a disappointment. And I, I'm sorry about that. I, I didn't really intend to set out to make a programme that was all about how disappointing life is. So, so uh, all I can say is that uh, I, I, I'm sorry. John Ronson on Amateur Sleuths was written and presented by John Ronson and the producer was Laura Parfit. The programme was produced by Unique, the production company for BBC Radio 4. And next week, John will be looking into how to be invisible.